Here's what happens. Before we can cuff him, he goes for this weapon. We shoot this prick and steal his shit. Oh, fuck out of here. Terrence, what, what are we doing? I, I thought we had our thing going. No, you're wrong, baby. He acts like he likes you because he likes to get high. Huh? I don't mean to stop being the police. Cuff him, Stevie! Oh, you draw a line of murder? Murder work gets interesting. Murder work gets fun. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fun. And it's time for Kill McCast. Yeah, it's time for Kill McCast. Welcome to Kill McCast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals out there listening to a new episode of KilmerCast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly beguiling American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Kilmer's brief role as a New Orleans cop in 2009's Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Joining us to chat about the film and Kilmer's role in it is a writer, actor, producer, and official movie geek who you may have seen in the wonderful documentary Out of Print, and if you haven't, you probably should. It's Mark Edward Hoyk. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the program. Thank you for being on the program. How how's how's life right now in this strange world we live in? Um, it it's it's pretty interesting. A lot of my a lot of my life in the last couple of years was uh, all these kind of furtive fits and starts, and I've had a, a steady stream of activity over the last few months like I haven't known in a while. So it's it's nice to be in demand. <laughs> Absolutely. It's always nice to be wanted. <laughs> your, uh, your presence brings the total of people from Cincinnati, Ohio to the dizzying heights of two on the show. So I appreciate you in helping achieve that goal. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I live and work in Los Angeles, but I'm uh, taking an extended stay in the Cincinnati to uh, deal with some family business so mm. you know quasi by coastal as it were wow that, that's fancy <laughs> yeah uh, yeah like ohio is a coast <laughs> <laughs> well there's water there right oh the ohio river the old and tangy <laughs> it works <laughs> so since you are on kilmer cast you should probably talk about your experience with the kilmer canon what are your thoughts in general on val kilmer as an actor well I think my first exposure to him was probably the same as most people of my generation, which was uh, in Top Secret, and mm -hmm. you know he was hilarious there. And then just seeing him do this variety of roles and and genres, doing something as large and broad as Willow, and then something as thoughtful as Thunderheart, and mm. uh, just absolutely loony is a real genius and and then like a lot of actors you get fond of sometimes i would start getting a little concerned when the roles weren't as good and he was clearly okay you know he's got he's got to pay rent and this is this is the best that's out there so that when he would get something really juicy like kiss kiss bang bang it's like now that's what that man can do you know absolutely. more more of this please it's funny because when you, you have an actor like him who he had such a huge uh, start to his career, his first two decades were, you know, just massive. And then, yeah, like you said, he started taking on lesser roles. And you're right. It was mostly a financial decision to take on those roles. So then when he did get a good role, like you said, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and some other a few here and there, you really appreciate the performances he gave in those because you could see, oh, that is he's still in there. That's not it's not it's not him that's changed. It's just the roles that he's doing. 
Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I have to take him to task for throwing a huge monkey wrench into the island of Dr. Moreau. The way he you know, threw his weight around there, it just makes me think, oh, you were drinking your own Kool-Aid at this point, Val. Yeah, I'm going to assume that today's title is not the title that you would choose. But what is your favorite Val Kilmer film? Ooh, well, that's a tough one. I think I'd have to flip, flip a coin on you know, Top Secret and Real Genius. You know, just that you know that young, fresh, exuberant face who wasn't yet you know caught up in his own hype and not battling his own demons yet. You know, just mm. this presence who was engaging and an antic and beguiling. Yeah, to start your career with two two films like that is just outstanding. I mean, you don't get to do performances like that right out the gate for most people. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about Val Kilmer, but today's film, really the star is Nick Cage, obviously. And this is one of his many unhinged performances. What would you consider your favorite performance by Nick Cage? Well, you know, there are so many to pick from in, in so many eras. But I, I think off my head, the one that I think about the most is It Could Happen to You. Or, oh, that's interesting or the, the, the proper title, that you know, the, the ghoul title that would have been which, which was uh, Cop Tips Waitress 2 Million. Mm-hmm. And the studio thought, someone at the studio axed that title and gave it this generic damn thing and you know, sandbagged it. Yeah. But because I think uh, Cage and Robin Williams for me, you know, they, they could do just about anything, but I always liked them the most when they were just playing a guy. Mm. You know, just you know, playing somebody totally unaffected, just trying to muddle through life like everybody else. And in Cop Tips Waitress, there is this friendliness and this desire to just do the right thing. And he's totally just an open book. You know, mm. there we I think get so caught up in just seeing the nutty cage that we forget that he can be this warm and inviting individual. It dates back to to Valley Girl that mm. you get to Valley Girl and about halfway through you realize, oh my God, he's the girl. <laughs> you know, he's he's this he's the vulnerable person who has you know built their life around this other person. And mm. when in normal stories, it's a woman getting totally smitten with a guy and trying to do everything in her power to get him back. And the role reversal there is very clever and it's executed so well. And, and, you know, you, and you get a little sampling of all of the stuff that made Nick memorable. You get vulnerable cage, you, you get dangerous cage, you get nutty cage, you know, again, like, like Kilmer, it shows all of his potential in one place. I want to see Cage do more straight romantic stuff. I know almost nobody will give it to him right now because they're banking on his name to bring in a certain demographic, and he just likes to work, and he's not pretentious. He doesn't put on airs about what he's going to do, but I do wish that he just you know hold out and be a guy again. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Valley Girl because that's Martha Coolidge who gave us also the the first and greatest Val Kilmer in Real Genius you know it's like yeah she found these two and found the best in them you know mm-hmm. in, right off the bat early on yeah that, that Martha really had 
you know, for aside while creating great female characters, uh, she really had an eye for finding good men. Yeah, that's a, that's a very very interesting little parallel there between those two. I don't believe now. You like you said, you're correct. I think that nobody's going to give Nick Ch- a chance to do that anymore to be a normal guy because people don't expect that anymore. And I think you could gave him that role. You could get a really interesting film out of that because it'd be so unexpected versus what it used to be where it was so unexpected to see him go insane, like on Vampire's Kiss or, you know, like um, Mm -hmm. Wild at Heart. Now you'd have this totally different shock out of being normal. That Well, every now and then somebody does it. Like David Gordon Green gave him Joe, which Mm -hmm. was outstanding, or... Oliver Stone gave him World Trade Center, and I think I think he's in his Snowden biopic. I can't I can't recall. Hmm. Um, Not sure, I don't remember that. But you know, that it, it it's gonna. I think it's gonna have to take a name filmmaker willing to put him in against the the wishes of smarter people, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, I think a, a period piece might be a, a great vehicle for that because inside of a period piece, you have kind of the restraints of the time frame where he might not work for an older, you know, older period as his wacky self. Um, so then he would work even better as his restrained, more normal self. So uh, before we get started on the film today, let's talk about it in context. Gather round as we put Kilmer in context. So uh, Bad Lieutenant, Protocol New Orleans, a very uh, unwieldy title, <laughs> received a limited release in theaters in America on November 20th, 2009, with in- interestingly, on that same day, 17 years earlier, the original Bad Lieutenant was released with Harvey Keitel. So, and we'll talk a bit more about the parallels and the uh, the differences between these two films, but if they wanted to separate them, they probably shouldn't have released them on the exact same day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's just plain serendipity. I don't really I, – I, I honestly don't think that was intentional simply because people in this business are not that creative. <laughs> True. You, know, you, you, want, you want to believe that you know, there's that level of petty and of you know, keeping receipts, <laughs> especially because you have the internet and you can find that sort of data readily, but – no, there is no way that they were actually trying to make a statement with that booking strategy. I would doubt it. They do have the same producer, though. So Yes, they do have the same producer, although I don't know how hands-on Edward Pressman was mm. in this production. That A lot of the movies that Pressman is involved in and has his name on, he's not so much you know the hands-on producer as he is just like you know a a significant financial contributor or you know the guy who owns the ip in the Mm. case of a bad lieutenant he's a fascinating individual you know he because he helped get a lot of great directors their first gig and he has this mix of major studio fare and weird indie fare like uh, lewis jackson's christmas evil which was a good chunk of which was shot at his family's toy company because people don't remember that Ed Pressman is the is the scion of the uh, Pressman Toy Company and I never connected that. Well, Pressman was never as big as Ideal or Mattel or Kenner. Uh, they they were mostly doing board games. They were significant for a long while, and they had an announcer doing their toy commercials. I don't know his name. I just know it's he did a lot of trailers 
and other commercials. And he's the voice on the the infamous trailer for the martial arts movie Death Machines, oh, okay. where they're putting this uh, computer uh, echo on his voice. <laughs> and and I'm you know because when I first saw that trailer, it's like oh, that's the guy from the Pressman Toy commercials. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely remember Pressman Toys from my from my youth for sure. Uh, a lot of board games. I think I had a Parcheesi set from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, at this time, uh, the films released. Uh, there was a mass shooting at Fort Hood in Texas by a major in the army that left 13 dead and 30 injured. Uh, the shooter was left paraplegic in the attack, and he was sentenced to death. But as of this recording, he's still in prison over a decade later. Rhode Island outlawed prostitution after 29 years of it being decriminalized in the state, which is something I did not know, that uh, prostitution was not a, a criminal act in Rhode Island for a long time. Mm. Odd little trivia there. Hell, <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry I didn't go to Rhode Island sooner <laughs> when I had the chance. <laughs> it was funny reading the articles. They were very proud about having changed this after 30 years or so. About I'm like, well, you really cared about this? Like, That's an odd thing to worry about. Yeah, and you know, you're kind of going backwards, not forwards. The decriminalization should be what everyone else is, should be thinking about right now. Exactly. The original of Laura, which was an unfinished manuscript by Vladimir Nabokov, was published against his wishes as he wanted it to be burned following his death. Another uh, evidence of authors not being treated correctly after their deaths, that their work does not belong to them in the end, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I, I've never read it. How's the book? I don't. You can't say I read it either. The only Nabokov I've read is uh, Lolita. <laughs> well, there's there's an anecdote in uh, Robert Evans' The Kid Stays in the Picture where uh, he was given a first crack at a new Nabokov book, and he read it, and he said he read it twice, and he he couldn't he couldn't figure out what it was about, and <laughs> that he reluctantly passed on the property. And so I'm wondering if that was the book very possible because it um apparently sat for 30 years after his death before anybody touched it uh so very possible that was the storyline the uh the first ever cannabis cafe opened in america at this time in portland oregon uh it's purely about medicinal marijuana at the time and not no longer in business so i guess it was way ahead of its time and chris christie won the office of governor in new jersey which was just the start of a long sad twisted journey he would take in politics Yeah, that's the same feeling I have. <laughs> yeah. And in sad news, uh, Ken Ober, the host of the game show Remote Control, passed away at this time at just 52 years of age. Uh, oh, I, I still love you that show. Oh, yeah. I, I auditioned for Remote Control when yeah. I was in college, and I was, I was so sad that I didn't get called up. What a wonderful uh, show. I oh, mean, that, I, w- that, I would have been so in my element on oh, that. Oh, absolutely. That was, uh, such a fun show, so much talent that came out of it, and for the most part, I don't think you can find anybody who ever had an angry thing to say about Ken Ober. I can uh, that he was just a a well liked individual, and you know, funny and engaging, and we should have gotten at least twenty more years out of him. Oh, absolutely! And you know, they reboot everything else. Why not reboot Remote Control? I mean, such a simple idea that works. I think syndication. Because mm. you don't see those remote control episodes anymore, and I think it's for the same reason you don't see Beat the Geeks anymore. Mm. Uh, that uh, one, they don't want to pay the residuals to uh, the talent, mm. and uh, and definitely in the case of remote control, because of all the sing along with Colin segments. Oh, all of the music rights. 
Yeah. Mm. It's a real yeah, I, I had I had to learn about that the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, your show was fantastic as well. No, th thank you. I just wish that Fox Television hadn't buried the tapes and salted the ground. Yeah, I think I could only find one episode of it on uh, on YouTube. Yeah, I I, th I think yeah, th I think there's one episode <laughs> that has managed to survive all of uh, the uh, DMCA takedowns. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. It's magic, I guess. <laughs> We need one example out there. <laughs> it's not even a good example. <laughs> I know. I think you only, uh, they didn't call on you very often. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, looking at the entertainment landscape. So we won't be hearing from Mark during the music segment here because of technical difficulties. Those difficulties being that I pulled the wrong chart when preparing the episode. So I'll just go over the top three here, which started with Fireflies by Al City. Al City was featured on a recent episode, and I don't hate that he's back here again. Sure, the song got overplayed, but it's still really enjoyable to listen to, even if it is slightly mawkish. In the second slot was Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z, featuring Alicia Keys. This is not a favorite tune of mine, but the chorus is iconic. I mean, if you write a catchy tune about the big city, you definitely got a hit on your hands. However, I can't agree with Jay-Z when he talks about making a Yankee hat more famous than a Yankee. I mean, come on, Derek Jeter. For real. While Alice City returned with a different song, Jason Derulo is back with the same song we heard from him last time he was here, that Imogene Heap sampled Whatcha Say. That sample is obviously killer, but that auto-tune, not so much. Well, back to the show with Mark. Jumping over to TV, NBC led the way with Sunday Night Football. Uh, that would be its only entry into the top 10. Uh, this was a rough time for NBC because the top 10 was mostly split between ABC, CBS, and Fox, with ESPN's Monday Night Football getting a tie for seventh. Uh, ABC had the American Music Awards, which, uh, I mean, obviously at different times since award shows do not do well at all on television anymore. Yeah, and uh, NBC had to make an interesting concession to get football away from ABC, or specifically, they wanted Al Michaels hmm. to, to call the games. So uh, Disney worked out a deal where they traded Al Michaels to NBC but NBC Universal had to give over all of the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons oh, that, was that, that they owned. Oh, uh, wow. So that so that all of Disney's work could uh, go go back to the studio. Hmm. And because that's no one of the things that I'm surprised has not yet happened after this huge Disney acquisition of uh, 20th Century Fox is that apparently Everything has passed muster in terms of what they've acquired, but I was waiting for Disney to start doing some serious horse trading with all of the other studios that still own pieces of Marvel or other Disney properties. Mm. And I figured that they would offload some of the Fox assets that they don't want to hold on to in order to get stuff like the Incredible Hulk back from Universal. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe that'll still happen further down the road because they've they've just taken on so much that they're still sorting through it. Oh, I'm sure there's so much of all these uh, contracts to deal with. I mean, just the uh, theme parks alone are trouble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't figure out how to get uh, Marvel into the East Coast of the theme park side of things. After the award shows, they also had Grey's Anatomy and Dancing with the Stars, while CBS had the old standbys, The Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, and NCIS, 
while Fox charted with House and Family Guy. I guess I forgot that house was popular because I, I didn't remember it being a top show like that. Oh yeah. In, in 2009 house was pretty damn huge. You know, it was in, it was in meme culture. It was destination television when that very concept was still kind of falling by the wayside. And people like me who already knew about Hugh Laurie from all of the British sitcoms that he had done, mm-hmm. the, it was this, kind of radical change in that oh he's got this growling american accent and he's doing a <laughs> you know a, a mystery series that for a couple generations of people house is going to be to them what uh, columbo was to us mm, i love columbo both universal properties too we've been watching a lot of columbo and banachek lately Oh, yeah. I frequently go to YouTube just to watch uh, the NBC mystery movie opening. I always wished that since USA was a universal owned channel that they would recreate it for all of their you know, pseudo mystery shows like you know, Suits and Monk. And you know, I like to mind the past. I not necessarily live in it because the future is great and necessary. But there's so much cool stuff that is left by the wayside. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, as a, as a kid who grew up with USA as a huge syndication outlet, I, there were so many shows that we saw that we, they, don't, they don't have that kind of television anymore. You don't see syndication done like that anymore. Well, USA, when, when USA started out, it was a three-way venture between Universal, Paramount, and uh, Time Life. before they merged with uh, Warner Brothers. So Mm -hmm. for many years, USA Network was basically a garage sale. (laughs) You know, it was like all the shows that didn't have enough episodes for five days stripping and movies that they couldn't sell in syndication, you know, because they were too racy or not popular, they all dumped them on USA. (laughs) But that's where you started getting interesting stuff like, you know, night flight on Fridays mm-hmm. and Saturdays running these Paramount rock and roll movies like Breaking Glass and Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, or mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these uh, detective shows that Universal made in the 70s that didn't go into syndication, got a second life there. So you were seeing stuff like Toma or uh, Petricelli there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's over time that, you know, as Universal took over sole ownership that they started really putting muscle behind it and creating original programs. Yeah, I miss up all night. I mean, that that was something that we just don't have anything like that anymore, I think. Yeah, what I feel like we desperately need, and I think a lot of people are demonstrating that they want in smaller fashions, is uh, host-driven movies. Mm. I mean, you get that on TCM, thankfully, but but something like Up All Night, where you've got somebody who's actively engaging with the film as it's playing, you know, like like Sven Gulli on uh, MeTV, or there's... What we're beginning to see now are lots of people online who use Facebook and Twitter to like a live intro and they'll tell you, okay, now go to Tubi to watch the film. And then when it's over, we'll all meet back here or, you know, the the TCM party hashtag where people are Mm -hmm. comment. I was on that uh, at the time of this taping, uh, TCM Underground had aired the uh, Frank D. Felitta thriller Scissors with uh, Sharon Stone. And mm. 
I was live tweeting that at, you know, two in the morning and there were all these other people like, you know, some on the West Coast where it was still not bedtime hours. And it, it was, you know, hilarious, the the back and forth we, we were having. And I think movie hosts are something that that needs to come back. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, as a fan of Elvira, I'm all about that. You know, especially now when we have the ability to actually communicate with those hosts. You know, in the past, you couldn't do that except for call-ins if you had a call-in show. But now you have so many opportunities to have a conversation that builds on the film. Well, yeah. And the the idea that that everybody is taking part in this at once, that we've we've lost the the notion of destination programming and mm. uh, because we have we can adjust it to whatever schedule we want and that is a beautiful thing but there is something comforting about knowing that you're watching something with other people in the manner that you can have like you know Led Zeppelin 4 on vinyl on CD on mp3 on spotify but if you turn on the car radio and they're playing live and love and made you're going to stay on the station because you know that everybody in the city that's listening to the station is having the same experience as you. Yeah, there's something to be said for shared experiences, and we lack a lot of that nowadays. Mm -hmm. Being a limited release, Bad Lieutenant naturally wasn't going to be at the top of the box office, pulling in just $245,000 from just, you know, obviously just 27 theaters. It's a little bit behind the number one film that weekend, which was Twilight Saga New Moon, which had $142 million in its opening weekend. You know, it's just dominated, especially when you consider the next film on the chart had was only $108 million behind it, uh, which was the debut of Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side. Uh, two very different films right there. Oh, yeah. I I saw Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans opening weekend at uh, the Chinese in Hollywood, and they had it in the big house. Oh, wow. Which was kind of amazing because by this time they had built their sixplex uh, above uh, near the uh, Kodak Theater where the Oscars happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would play plenty of small studio fare up there, but it was rare that they would play something on that scale in the big Chinese auditorium. And mm-hmm. I, I think it was me and my best friend, Chris Price, went and the place was almost barren. Now, <laughs> yeah. my now my other friend, uh, F- uh, Phil Blankenship, who is uh, the uh, social media director for the New Beverly Cinema on uh, Twitter, he went and he, he and his girlfriend, they were all alone wow. in the Chinese theater watching oh. Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. Hey, private screening. <laughs> yeah, but I just thought – who would we ever live to see the day that a Werner Herzog movie would be playing the Chinese? You know, yeah. that was uh, that I could not pass up that opportunity oh, to just, you know, see him in this kind of dubious glory that he never would have envisioned for himself because he never saw himself as that kind of filmmaker. Certainly not. Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely a unique experience for a film like that. Yeah, and it just it just made it made the movie even greater for me because I was seeing it in such an August presentation. Mm-hmm. You know that the only thing that I can compare it to is the era of the '70s when a lot of the movie palaces in big cities were on their last legs and they were showing Grindhouse Fair. 
Mm. You know, that, you know, there's that little moment in Dolomite is my name where uh, Bob Odenkirk is playing Lawrence Woolner of Dimension Pictures. And he's trying to negotiate with Rudy Ray Moore to get the rights to Dolomite and telling him that we're going to book it in these big houses in major cities that have like, you know, thousands of seats and the, and at this point, they're not being attended by white people. They've migrated to the suburbs. These theaters are being attended by black people who still live in the city, and they are going to fill the place. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are so many theaters in you know my hometown of Cincinnati that were already closed by the time I was old enough to start going to movies. But I would see that they were still standing, but boarded up and then eventually mm-hmm. torn down. And I would have love to have seen anything in them but especially some of the exploitation movies that were were big back then just because you know of the the incongruity of the you know the opulent uh, exterior versus uh the the grimy material on screen yeah I, I mean i can remember seeing casablanca at the radio city music hall not quite the same feeling <laughs> it feels like that fits there <laughs> Yeah, if, if anything, it's more fun to see Casablanca in a rundown theater. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's 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 that whole it's like that maxim of how you know, you talk about the directors who who treat character actors like stars and stars like character actors. You know that you want to put prestige fare in grimy theaters to make them feel at home, and you want to put grimy movies in prestige theaters to make them feel large. Yeah. I can I can definitely go for that, and I'd love to see that kind of thing happen again. I don't think we're going to, though, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> the Blind Side was a bit ahead of the next film, which was the global disaster film 2012, which itself was ahead of the week debut of the animated film Planet 51. Do you remember Planet 51? Uh, vaguely. Yeah, I was surprised because I, I looked at it. I don't remember it very much at all. And it was the lead voice was Dwayne Johnson, which mm-hmm. uh, that's the big thing I remember. Um, yeah. I think, well, there were a lot of animated alien films within like a five year period because we had Planet 51. We had Home mm. and, you know, there, there there's a couple others that I'm blanking on that. So you know, they they kind of, you know blended together as uh, we moved into uh, the, the, the 2010s. Yeah, you start, they're not feeling as special when you, you see so many. I remember there's another one, a 3D one that came out that was also very much the same. And again, I can't think of because they're all pretty uh, much Was same. it Battle for Terra? Uh, no, not that one. This is more of a comedic one. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, you just named another one. That, you know, so mm-hmm. there's so many. <laughs> The rest of the chart included the Jim Carrey version of the of A Christmas Carol, Precious, which although it was in just a few theaters, did huge money, The Men Who Stare at Goats, Couples Retreat, The Fourth Kind, and the Michael Jackson documentary This Is It. On the other end of the charts, uh, the, the lowest grossing film was The Stoning of Soraya M., which was in its 22nd week in theaters and earned just $93 playing in one theater. I was looking at this film and I was like, wow, I've never even heard of this film. And I, I was reading some of the reviews and apparently there's this incredibly brutal stoning scene in it that lasts 20 minutes, which would explain why people probably didn't want to go sit and sit through it in theaters. Yeah. As I recall, I want to say it was like some sort of right wing religious group that had financed the movie mm-hmm. and, you know, that, you know, they, they were trying to sell it as this women's suffrage type of story but it was really just an excuse for all this anti-muslim sentiment by you know pulling this legitimately horrifying case and amping it up to make it 
uh, a metaphor for all of Islam. Yeah, that's not, I mean, definitely I've seen that a lot with right-wing causes that, you know, trying to present itself as being a positive, but it's definitely just a negative. And, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, on it's the darker version of uh, Maria Bamford's bit about disguised churches, you know, where it's like, yeah, hey, uh, you want to come over? You know, there's going to be music and coffee and activities for the kids. You're a church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stop fooling me with your Jimi Hendrix font. <laughs> Maria Bamford is just the best. <laughs> yes. And um, uh, uh, we should say a few words about uh, the uh, distributor of uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call. Uh, First Look Pictures was an outfit that had been around uh, since the the 90s and actually had its roots go back even further into the 80s. Hmm. It emerged from a company that was called the Cinema Group that okay. in the late 70s had begun making movies like Southern Comfort by Walter Hill. Okay. And then they morphed around and uh, joined forces with a, uh, a production company called Overseas Film Group that mm -hmm. did a lot of, you know, kind of low budget fare that would be more popular in Europe than it would in America. So there was a lot of straight to video stuff that Overseas Film Group did. But then First Look Pictures emerged and started being like an art house subsidiary. And they had some minor hits. Uh, they handled uh, the release of uh, Marlena Gorris's Antonia's Line and uh, Mrs. Dalloway oh, and yeah. Party Girl with uh, Parker oh, Party Posey. Girl. So they had these ebbs and flows. And in the late 2000s, they got this huge cash infusion from like a major investor. And so they started trying to become a mini major. Mm. You know, that you know, they didn't quite want to be Miramax, but they wanted to be to kind of fill that void now that Miramax was making bigger scale movies because mm -hmm. they had some great ambitious stuff. They had the, the proposition, Nick Cave, and had uh, I think it's Guy Pierce and uh, Ray Winston were in it. Uh, they had What's Up Rockers by Larry Clark, mm. and they had also bought out the library of movies that Blockbuster had been quietly financing. Because oh, okay. you know, remember, there were all of these exclusive blockbuster movies that you could only rent from them. And you know, when Blockbuster went under, they had all this to offload and they and they bought it and they were beginning to reissue them. And so they you know they they were becoming you know, a, a force. So I think Bad Lieutenant was one of their attempts at you know, they, they again, they only did 29 theaters on the original break, but that they were positioning themselves to try and become a major independent. And like so many independents, ultimately, they spent too much money and went under. And I think what the, the what happened to them is they reorganized and briefly became a company called Alchemy. And they okay, only got a few movies out. Uh, one of them was Welcome to Me with uh, Kristen Wiig. They hmm. were supposed to release The Lobster. Oh. They ultimately gave up The Ghost and uh, offloaded it to A24. And, you know, The Lobster wasn't a huge hit, but it got Yorgos Lanthimos into making more English language pictures. So, hmm. you know, who knows what would have happened if they could have gotten that over the finish line. Now, hmm. their their entire library is controlled by FilmRise, and FilmRise have been pretty aggressive about 
getting it back into circulation because they have their own streaming channel on uh, Roku. They even have uh, separate genre channels there as well. You know, the, the stuff's on Amazon Prime. They've been making new Blu-ray deals with some uh, boutique labels. So I'm hoping that maybe you know, we'll get an upgraded. I mean, I think they already put out a blue of Bad Lieutenant, but you know, maybe we'll we'll get an upgrade uh, now that it's you know had some years and some reflection behind it. I, I definitely notice when I see Film Rise because they are behind a lot of interesting little films that you know in distribution. I'm always like, oh yeah, Film Rise. I noticed. Well, they well they things. they've bought libraries so that <laughs> yeah. you know there are all these defunct distributors that they've acquired. That's where a lot of uh, bones are made. Like, uh, I like to joke that between Lionsgate and MGM, they probably own every major independent film of the 80s and 90s, just from all of the belly up independence that they acquired along the way. <laughs> I guess that's the way to do it, you know, <laughs> let somebody else take the the risk for financing him and then just pick up, pick him up when they fail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sad, but true. Yeah. Cause it only takes a few bad bets to take down a company. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now that we've looked back, uh, we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back to talk about bad Lieutenant port of call, New Orleans. <laughs> Welcome back to KilmerCast. Let's get into this film. So the 2009 version of Bad Lieutenant was written by William M. Finkelstein. It was the only feature film that he's written to date. Uh, that said, he has a long history of putting words in the cops' mouths, uh, having written on some of the biggest TV police and legal dramas, including Law & Order, L.A. Law, Murder One, and NYPD Blue. Most appropriately, however, for what happens in this film, he wrote more than half of the episodes of the legendary run of Cop Rock. Were you a fan of Cop Rock? I have never seen an episode. I own the DVD. <laughs> uh, I haven't gotten around to watching it yet. I was fully in favor of its existence. Mm-hmm. You know that I want. I wanted this show to succeed, even if everybody hated it, simply because it should exist in a world of conventional programming. Absolutely. Yeah, and I figured, well. Twin Peaks worked. Why not this? <laughs> I love a strange idea, and I'm all for exploring strange ideas, especially when you get what you got out of Cop Rock, which has some of those bizarre songs you could ever imagine. I mean, there's one a, called Baby Dealer, which is a song about, mm-hmm. you know, just amazing. Yeah, you know, we can thank John Oliver for putting that back <laughs> in the, 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 the public consciousness. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot that he showed that on his show. It's just like... I love the idea of a musical set in such a non-musical setting. And yeah, I'm a big fan of musicals myself, no matter what the, the scene, but this one especially felt so out of place. But I mean, this was the same time as Sledgehammer, right? Like Sledgehammer was around this time? No, uh, I, Sledgehammer was when I was in high school. Yeah, that was like mid 80s and Cop Rock was, I want to say like late 80s to early 90s. There was some daylight, you know, between those two shows. They feel very similar in a way, though, like taking a a weird angle on cop shows. Well, um, I'm I'm lucky to uh, be friends with uh, Alan Spencer and have hosted him at a. I did a screening uh, years ago of Marty Feldman's In God We Trust, Mm. which is uh, about to get released on Blu-ray for the first time, and. 
at that time, it hadn't screened theatrically in decades, and I was lucky to get Alan to do an introduction and talk about his lifelong friendship with uh, Marty Feldman and the all the behind-the-scenes drama of uh, getting the movie made. But he he was basically satirizing Dirty Harry. This was mm-hmm. a Dirty Harry series, you know, in that was parodying the very genre of the Maverick Cop in the same way that Get Smart was parodying the, the spy drama. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cop Rock, you know, that's Stephen Bochco. He's created Hill Street Blues. And, and he had already kind of toyed with subverting genre. You know, there's, there's that episode of St. Elsewhere, which, uh, I mean, I don't think he is directly involved with it. You know, they were both MTM productions, so they kind of fuse in my head. Mm-hmm. But there's that episode of St. Elsewhere where, you know, they are going into dream sequences. And so there's like a whole surgery scene that's done to ZZ Top's legs. <laughs> and, you know, Hill Street Blues itself was you had all of these Second City comedy people in it, but playing straight against all of these absurd situations to get across the idea of this is some of the nonsense a beat cop has to deal with every day. You know, they're not, they're not always out saving the world, you know, like on, you know, Lloyd Bridges on Joe Forrester. So Cop Rock was kind of the manifestation of all of the small tweaks that he and MTM, because Cop Rock was an MTM project, that they were beginning to take. It's like, all right, now we're just going to go large on all of it here. Mm. And they and they brought, you know, they had Randy Newman writing for it. You know, he had other great songwriters. This was not amateur hour. <laughs> I wonder in a world that has somewhat more embraced the musical in a post-glee world, that if Cop Rock could work, maybe if they brought it back for a special. Well... I I don't know because for every glee you have, we have a Viva Laughlin. True. You know, that that was another music driven drama series that, you know, barely eked out a season. Yeah. Although Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist is doing relatively well, I think. Well, I think the, the key is that both Glee and Zoe, they're they're using pop hits. You know, they're not trying to no, write that's true. It's not original original songs. I mean, I think Viva Laughlin was using, you know, standards in it as well. That uh, Bochco had said his inspiration for Cop Rock was Dennis Potter's The Singing Detective. Hmm. And, you know, that and that was a well-received show in England. And, you know, it had a, a cult following in America when it was aired here, uh, you know, not on any of the major networks, but it was, you know, you could get it. So I think it's it's a combination of you've got to have a network who is willing to commit to it because you know, mm. what happens is they go in guns a blazing and if it doesn't immediately take off, they pull the support and let it wither on the vine. True. I do give credit that ABC, they did keep advertising Cop Rock to the bitter end. Like I remember there being a big TV guide ad for the final episode where, you know, they had a woman and I, I can't remember if it was, you know, your, your standard opera singer in a Viking headdress or, you know, a large woman in a uniform, but it's like tonight, the fat lady sings, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, the show's over. You never see that now. <laughs> yeah. Nobody celebrates the end of a series, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Oh, behind the camera was legendary director Werner Herzog, who was, he's responsible for obviously some truly fantastic films and documentaries. I mean, I hear The Wrath of God, Fitzcarraldo, Nosferatu the Vampire, uh, My Best Fiend, Grizzly Man, uh, so many others. Do you have a favorite Herzog film? Ha. Huh. A favorite Herzog film, I would, I, I'm still working my way through is his CV and there's uh, some gaping holes in it therein, but I would say my favorite is Aguirre hmm. because, you know, that that's the one that pretty much put him and Klaus Kinski on the map. I mean, Kinski had already been slumming about in exploitation movies that he'd been in all of these uh, Edgar Wallace mysteries and stuff like uh, Creature with the Blue Hand or uh, a lot of these uh, Euro Westerns. But this, but Aguirre is where the, the, these two madmen really found synchronicity. And that last shot of him, you know, drifting out on, to sea on, on the raft and, you know, the monkeys are chattering and he's like, I am the wrath of God. And that's just, you know, the signaling of this man has arrived. Mm. My favorite is an odd one for sure. I love Even Dwarf Started Small. Have you ever seen that? I have not. It is wild. <laughs> it's one of his very early films. Uh, it's just out there. It, um, these little people take over uh, what seems like an asylum of some sort. And it's just chaotic. And But I love it because it feels like it is just pure Herzog where it's like, he's like, I'm going to do something interesting to me. And if you want to come along for the ride, come along for the ride. But otherwise, I don't care. Yeah, not all of his stuff has worked in recent years, but he's never felt the need to do anything in order to pay alimony or build a pool. <laughs> no, he does his own thing for sure every time. But it's interesting that in later years, he's kind of become a pop culture artifact in a way because so many people imitate him now. You know, they, they love the voice and that mannerism. Well, I, I do. I do it myself. Oh, uh, you do? <laughs> uh, my my uh, What I like to do is... Uh, uh, Werner Herzog uh, telling Rodney Dangerfield jokes. <laughs> I tell you, I get no respect. I agreed to go on a blind date. I went to the street corner at the appropriate time. A lady came by. I said, are you Louise? She said, are you Rodney? I said, yes. She said, I am not Louise. <laughs> Every winter, I would tell my father to take me ice skating. He would tell me to wait until it got warmer. <laughs> I went to my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombots. I said, every time I drink coffee, I get a sharp stinging pain in my eye. He said, next time, take the spoon out. It's a perfect pairing. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so good. I, mean, I also have the unique distinction of appearing in a movie that Herzog is also in, but we don't share any screen space, mm. that I was asked to be a featured extra in uh, Robbie Pickering's uh, horror comedy Kitchen Sink, okay. which uh, was uh, released by Sony under the title Freaks of Nature. And, and at the climax of the movie, uh, an alien presence uh, arrives with the voice of Werner Herzog. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the day I w the day I did uh, my zombie scene, uh, Patton Oswalt was there, and he had uh, had a small part in it. And I think they had taped uh, Herzog's audio that day as well, so I missed him by minutes. But that Patton met Herzog just as he were coming out and said, "Oh, I'm in this movie too," and he said, "Oh, are you a zombie?" <laughs> 
and and he said the existential weight of that question lingered on me for days (laughs) it's so weird to me now that he is like he's somebody who you see in all sorts of animated series i mean the fact that he's now part of the biggest pop culture phenomenon he's part of star wars now as a you know cast member on the mandalorian the idea that herzog has come to that point is so strange to me well i love it you know that i think you know that he spent all these years being his own person and doing what he wanted to do and it's like the world has caught up to him that's a good way to put it. And also because he's had such iconoclastic opinions on art and culture that it's like that Sprockets sketch with uh, Woody Harrelson on SNL where Dieter is hosting this artist that he had known in Germany who had done all of this dark, bleak material. And Woody Harrelson comes out and he's wearing one of those hats with the straws and the the glasses on it and he's just gone buck wild with uh, trash culture that if you think about in the 70s there were three huge german directors that you had you had fassbender you had herzog and you had vim vendors and uh, unfortunately fassbender didn't make it out of his 30s but you know vendors came to America and he married a a country singer briefly and did some incredible stuff here in the States and still kind of a fringe director in terms of what projects he can do or get or get made. Uh, And then, or you, and then you look at uh, Udo Kier had been making all of these weird German art films and the occasional uh, exploitation film. And you know, then he moved to Los Angeles. And now he's also like Herzog is this beloved cult figure who will do uh, Milky Way commercials. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, I'm sure he had no idea he'd be doing that when he was doing to no life, you have to fuck death in the gallbladder <laughs> when he was making Paul Morrissey's Flesh for Frankenstein. The monoculture openly embraced the counterculture in unexpected ways, and consequently, that's led to these wonderful things. And I think Herzog, at least when it comes to you know doing acting roles or cartoon voices, there's some thought about okay, you know, they're paying me well, and I can funnel this into making one of my iconoclastic movies mm. but i think he but i think he gets a kick out of it oh, I, I think you he know, does. i think yeah i think he you know he has said that he'd rather watch martial arts movies than godard movies you know <laughs> that he he's into visceral pleasure mm. yeah we should probably talk a bit about the differences between this film and the original bad lieutenant uh which starred harvey Keitel, directed by abel ferrer i mean this film is not considered a remake. It's not considered a sequel, even though it has the same title, essentially, Bad Lieutenant, and has the same theme of a corrupt cop and what happens with that corrupt cop. But otherwise, they're pretty different films. When the film was originally announced, Abel Ferrara was legitimately furious at the mm-hmm. making of this film. He said, as far as remakes go, I wish these people would die in hell. I hope they're all in the same streetcar and it blows up. And then Herzog, in response to that, said, I have no idea who Abel Ferrara is. I have a hard time believing Herzog didn't know who Abel Ferrara was. I mean, he's not somebody who doesn't pay attention to pop culture. Well, I think uh, Herzog is someone who engages with pop culture at a certain distance. Mm. I don't think he keeps up with 
filmmakers in general, unless they're like directly coming into his orbit, you know, that Mm. you went that when Roger Ebert was alive, that they might have been talking about people and he'd bring up somebody and they and he'd be aware of them. So I, I think it is entirely plausible that Herzog could have gone so long and been generally unaware of uh, Ferrara's body of work because most of it was under the radar, you Mm -hmm. know, that it was all of these. I mean, look, Ferrara had at least two movies in the 2000s that were picked up by a major distributor and never released. Mm. You know that you know he had his Virgin Mary movie, and he had another film that IFC picked up. And to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know what ever happened to them. I haven't so, heard anything about them. <laughs> yeah. So so Ferrara, the very few times he did studio fare, you know, he did his Body Snatchers remake for Warner Brothers, and that got dumped. Mm. Uh, you know, he made a few movies for Vestron, and you know, Vestron went under. Ferrara's also had his own personal demons to, to deal with. Certainly. So I feel like Herzog probably never saw the original Bad Lieutenant. At most, maybe he might have heard Roger talk about it. I believe but, that. I believe that he never saw the original film. I just have a hard time believing that he never heard of Abel Ferrara. I mean, I, I have to think at some point, at some film festival, it, the name would have at least come up. I mean, he's not somebody who ignored, like you said, he doesn't ignore pop culture. There's something that would have crossed his path. And I think it might have been just his way of saying, oh, you're going to say how I should die? I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the Mariah Carey, I don't know her gift. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So the title of this film was the idea of the, the screenwriter Finkelstein. He was really adamant about keeping the title. And I don't understand why, if it's not a remake, what was the point of having the same title as this other film, which has the same thematic qualities to it? Why would you want to keep the same name? I don't understand that at all. Well, Okay. See, it's peculiar that it's the writer that would insist on keeping the title. Normally, that's a money man deal where you know, that in this day and age where almost every existing intellectual property is either mined or contemplated being mined because no matter how niche it is, if it's already existed, somebody must know about it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I would have expected they held on to that because they wanted the name recognition because Bad Lieutenant wasn't a huge hit, no. but it was on many critics' lists as one of the best movies of the 90s. It's definitely one of Keitel's best performances. And so it's a title that has recognizability and they wanted to cash in on that, even if they kept publicly saying we're not. Mm. But if I was to hazard a guess, because my feelings about Port of Call New Orleans compared to the original is that it is in the embodiment of the old maxim, uh, history unfolds first as tragedy and then as farce. Mm. Because uh, Port of Call New Orleans definitely feels like farce yeah and i don't mean that in a derogatory fashion they have almost the exact same trajectory which is that you know a gleefully corrupt cop comes across a crime that strikes at their conscience in the original it's the rape of a nun who has uh, forgiven her attackers whereas in new orleans it's the murder of these immigrants that it, it will likely go unpunished and and that kind of eats at this character's soul. 
and it forces them into this crisis of conscience that they don't want to have even, and it drives them to go further into the bottom because they feel that's where they're headed anyway, to just destroy themselves because they can't deal with the weight of what's what's happening. That, you know, Keitel makes all of these bad bets and angers uh, other local crime figures and Cage does roughly the same thing, but Mm -hmm. is also, you know, bringing in his girlfriend and his family. But the approach is completely different, that Ferrara is all about the descent into hell and the potential for redemption, that even at the lowest point in your life, are you worthy to be redeemed? And, you know, where he's hallucinating and screaming at Christ. Whereas in this retelling of the story, it's much more absurd. It's that that Cage is seeing you know, reptiles where there aren't any, you know, mm. that he is making these really poorly thought out decisions. It's not a comedy, but it might as well be comedy mm. you know, because yeah, it, it, because it is because it is one damn thing after another. And the, the resolution is different. Keitel is consumed by the darkness, although he's able to do one last uh, positive act. Mm-hmm. And in this one, Cage comes out. I mean, it absurdly comes out. He gets all the money paid off. You know, he's he's going to be in even better circumstances than he was previously. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how could this possibly happen? Although there is the idea that it's a cycle and it will return back to the bottom in the end of the film. Or at the very least, he still has work to do. Mm. That he too is uh, brought to notice that he has done this one legitimate good act and that might be the key to uh, his redemption. Hmm. But it's going to be a long, hard road for him. Yeah. So let's go back to where it starts then, which is in New Orleans, obviously. This is post-Hurricane Katrina. I've read a couple of different reasons why it was set in Katrina, because obviously the original film was set in New York. Well, the reason I've, I've read several times is that uh, Nicolas Cage asked for it to be placed in New Orleans in order to bring money to the community after, New- after Hurricane Katrina, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they tied into the story, and we open up with uh, Val Kilmer and Nick Cage as detectives cleaning out lockers at a precinct house. And there's a prisoner named Chavez who's down in the uh, water in the prison. He's trapped there. And so they see that he's stuck there in the water. There's snakes in the water. And Cage and Kilmer are betting on what happens with him. And you know, immediately we know what we're dealing with here. These are terrible people. They are, are watching a man who could die right in front of them, and they're placing bets on what's going to happen with them. And it only goes further when Cage is gonna, he would, would go save him, but he's wearing $55 underwear. So you know, he doesn't really want to do that. But in the end, he does go in, and we don't see what happens at that point. We get a cut. And we get to the doctor's office, and now he's taking Vicodin for back pain. I thought it was interesting they didn't show us what happened there. They really want to just keep the momentum going, I think. I don't, I, I don't know if it was important for us to see what happened there. I don't quite understand what happened there, but do you think it was necessary for them to even show us? I think it's an effective leap because we just need to know how did the path to all of this destructive behavior get started? Mm-hmm. And you could start with him already being addicted to everything, which is how the first bad lieutenant goes. You know, we're dropped in media rests with Keitel. We don't know how he got corrupted, mm-hmm. but we just know that he is. And I think here they put it in to, in a sense, go into 
a question that is just as existentially valid as Farrar's question, which is, can good acts and bad acts be intertwined? I was once having a conversation with one of my uh, more religiously uptight relatives, and I was pulling an example out of, you know, a strange one, but I wanted to make a point. It was uh, one of the plot threads from uh, Stuck on You by the Farrelly brothers, <laughs> where Cher hires one half of the Kajoin twins to be on the TV show that she desperately wants to weasel out of. And she's done it because she wants the show to fail and to, to make this unwieldy demand on the production. But it turns out that the, the guy becomes a hit and the show succeeds. And after the fact, she meets up with them again and says, you know, look, I am sorry. I took advantage of you. I manipulating you to achieve a selfish goal for myself. And the twins say, what are you talking about? You know, we we became successful. You know, we're, we have a great life now. You did us a big favor. Hmm. The universe works in these weird ways that Something that has brought about you know, your decline may have helped somebody else in a fashion that you can't fathom at the moment. Mm-hmm. That Cage, at the end of the movie, he's still, well, he's not white knuckling because he's lapsing, mm-hmm. but that, you know, this, it's a goal that he wants, but he still has not achieved it. And he's confronted with this person that got him started on the path because he threw out his back and got this lifelong back pain and this Vicodin addiction that he wanted to feed. But he does have enough of a conscience to see that, okay, yeah, this guy turned himself around. Why can't I? Mm. So I guess that was something that was very important to this writer. You know, we get that back pain thing. We get that. And we find out that he has now, because of all this, been promoted to lieutenant and he's got this distinguished service award. But then the film jumps again. We've done, we've done a couple of jumps right off the bat here in the film. And then now we're six months later and now he's doing cocaine while on the job. And so obviously things are going way worse than what we saw before. He's doing cocaine. Now he's on the scene of this multiple homicide. And he finds this poem about this fish written by a child, the fish in the glass. I love that they called this back at the end. Like again, this idea of cycles, that everything is going around in a circle in this film. And I love that there's no escaping it for either McDonough, for the fish, for almost everybody. Because then you have Chavez, who I believe he got high in the end after you know saving him the first time. Now he's bringing him back down again. That this film is all about these cycles that these people are trapped in. That is an entirely valid reading. Uh, one of my favorite uh, literary quotes, it happens to be uh, a favorite literary quote of the director, Claude Lelouch, because he's used it in at least three of his movies. It's uh, from uh, Willa Cather's uh, O Pioneers. There are two or three stories in the whole of humankind, and they go on repeating themselves as if they're happening for the first time. Mm, That's a good one. So we see that McDonough is struggling because we get a briefing on the murder of all these immigrants. The father apparently was selling heroin. Uh, We get Vondi Curtis Hall, great character actor that we get here as the captain of the police force. He tells everybody that the family was from Senegal, that there, there was heroin involved. And we pan across the staff and then we land on McDonough and he looks awful. He looks just terrible. And the captain knows this. That's the thing about this film is that there's nobody doesn't know that there's something up with McDonough. You know, he's not hiding his problems very well. And captain says to McDonough, if you need help, you better ask for help. And everybody in this film else is looking for help. 
except he is not the he doesn't look for that help there's a chance for redemption but you need to reach out and there's always people reaching out to him but he refuses to reach out himself and i think that that's where the real big difference between this one and the original bad lieutenant lies is that this one feels positive in a real way versus bad lieutenant which is nihilistic in in many ways well I wouldn't say the original Bad Lieutenant is nihilistic. Well, it's very Catholic. Mm. You know, that you don't get redemption without atonement. Mm. And Keitel has gone so far that the only way he can atone is to die. Sorry, spoiler. Uh, (laughs) I think you should have seen it by now. (laughs) Yeah. He has time to do one last good deed, but he is... To quote Shakespeare's Macbeth, he is in blood stepped in so far that were he to wade no more, returning would be as tedious as to go or. Mm. Before he can be redeemed by Christ, he has to atone. You don't get forgiven until you suffer. You have to suffer for your sins. The farcical aspect, as you said yourself, he is never reaching out for help. So luck just turns his way that He's, he's doing the same irrational things that got him into this mess, and now they get him out. Mm. In a sense, he has not been seeking redemption, and redemption has been foisted upon him arbitrarily. Absolutely true, because there is that scene later in the film where everything is coming up roses for, for McDonough. Yeah. And it's so out of the blue that it, it's hard to explain what's the point of this scene. In the overall context of the film, why is so much good happening when... There was no reason for it. Well, that's Herzog. You know, that <laughs> Herzog knows that life is not fair. And sometimes these good things happen to people who never should have received them. Mm. It's not the nihilism of bad deeds go unpunished. You know, we've seen that in plenty of dark and gritty crime dramas, but we have never seen it brought with the level of ridiculousness <laughs> or straight faced ridiculousness that this movie does it with. Mm, absolutely. It goes into that whole idea that Herzog has mentioned many times, is that nature is cruel, and it treats some people one way, it treats some people the other a different way, and there's no figuring out why it just happens, and that this film is almost like a thesis statement on that. Mm-hmm. Because then you look at the relationship between McDonough's parents, well, not parents, his father and stepmother. He has a strained relationship with the, the father uh, because his father suffers from addiction himself, and but his father seeks out help, and he's actually going to meetings. He's trying to help people. And his stepmother, who's played by Jennifer Coolidge, which I was very surprised by. My main experience with Jennifer Coolidge is as a comedian. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, the Christopher Guest films, hilariously funny. Oh, yeah. Here, she's so different as a character. She's uh, a day drinker who uh, is just lost in a blur of, of beer. And how they exist together is a very unusual situation here because usually when you're an addict and you are trying to recover, you don't position yourself with another addict. Yeah, well, I have several sober friends. I don't know what kind of living arrangement they have if, you know, the ones that are in conjugal bliss. Um, <laughs> I know that there are some who who go sober who feel like, well, I have to exist in the world of people who are not sober. Hmm. I know that I can't consume this stuff, but other people who physically and mentally know their limits can, and I, you know, I want to exist in that world. I can't 
create this bubble for myself. So it could be that. I think also the dynamic between Cage and his father is probably the same kind of dynamic that a lot of people have in that someone who has been the victim of a bad parent that they have lived with them all their life and that the bad parent has finally had their moment of reckoning and has changed their ways, but the child is still living with the effects of that life previous. Mm. That everyone who goes around talking about what a wonderful person this parent is, you know, who takes care of the meetings and you know, is a sponsor to people, uh, that is like, yeah, you weren't there when I had to live with it. That sometimes it feels like, oh, you're saved now. You know, you found mm-hmm. God. You still wrecked my car, and I still walk with a limp. Mm-hmm. That he's finding it harder to forgive this parent for everything he put him through just because, you know, he finally got the reckoning because, you know, I'm still I'm still living with the detritus. Yeah. And on that regard, then we can talk about McDonough's girlfriend played by Ava Mendez in this film. And so these two are both definitely addicts. They share drugs together. And you have to think that that's kind of a result of that upbringing, seeing that and then following that path, which was kicked off by the like we, we assume it was kicked off by the Vicodin. Yeah. There, it, there's a chance that there was drugs there all the time. We don't know when the relationship with Frankie, who was played by Eva Mendez, started or when the drugs were started. But we have to, based on the film, the way it's presented to us, the Vicodin was the start of that, this path. Eva Mendez. Who was in Stuck on You. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was. Uh, did you know she retired from acting? I did not know she had officially retired. Yeah, just- she's. Just gave up to um, to take care of the children she shares with uh, Ryan Gosling. It's funny because I looked back at her at her IMDb and to see because you know she's a star. Obviously, people know her, but I couldn't find a role that really was a great role for her. She seemed to she was always stuck in these lover, you know, girlfriend, wife roles, and so I was like, how did she become big enough to the point where people know her? And but she's not. She's never given that performance that really a star gives at any point. And I think it's just really because she got pigeonholed into these roles and never really got the chance because like I think of the spirit. You, you remember the spirit by Frank Miller? Uh, I never saw the film, but I'm familiar. Yeah. Yeah. She played the main femme fatale in that film. And I thought, oh, here's her chance to really step up and be an interesting character. And it just never worked. And so at some point, is it her? Or is it the role she's being given because of who she is, which is a legitimately beautiful woman, and that they're just placing her in positions that she can't succeed like that? Well, I haven't looked at her full CV, so I can't contradict your statement as to whether she had a standout role. I think maybe it's just that she's just such a, a a fetching presence, you know, not just in terms of you know being conventionally attractive, but that she. In all the movies that I remember seeing her in, she just radiated this affability that that even if uh, her character was not achieving great things, we just liked being in her presence. Mm, that's, that's, that's a pretty good way to view it, I'd say. You know, I'm going to have to look at uh, her body of work now and, and see if something can stand out. Because, I, I mean, I remember her from... You know, stuck on you and uh, pl- uh, place between the pines and mm-hmm. that's probably her best role a couple other movies that yeah that she's not that she's not getting you know the big stretchy 
moments, but that she's never felt ornamental either. Mm-hmm. You know, she she's never been furniture. No, no, I wouldn't say that. She's never just in there because she's beautiful. Uh, yeah. she's, she doesn't, doesn't do a bad job of acting. You, you know the people who do bad jobs of acting and are just cast because they're models. She's not that type. But I don't think she ever got the, the opportunity to be better than what she's been presented as. About a month and a half ago, I wrote uh, an exhaustive essay about an actress from the 80s that I'm very fond of that r- retired early and has never looked back, a woman named uh, Rainbow Harvest. Hmm. That uh, the, the two most famous movies uh, she ever did were Old Enough, which was the debut of Marissa Silver, the daughter of uh, the recently departed Joan Micklin Silver. Uh, It was about two tweeners uh, in New York City uh, who meet over a summer, you know, one from an affluent family, the other from a working class family and and become friends, which was also the film debut of Alyssa Milano. Okay. Uh, The other film is uh, the horror movie Mirror Mirror with Yvonne DiCarlo and Karen Black and William Sanderson, where she plays a you know, gothy kid in a new town and finds a haunted mirror in her house and starts making wishes to it. And Mm -hmm. it's a very underrated movie. But what I noticed about her short career is that all of the best performances she ever gave were in movies directed and or written by women. Hmm. That in movies made by men, she was always just the girl. Hmm. She was just an ornament. And Hmm. I think that likely it was the fact that she was not getting good parts from the the dominating male directors and the stuff that she was doing with female uh, creatives were not reaching traction in the marketplace that, you know, that she decided, you know what, it's not worth it. goes back to our our discussion of Martha Coolidge earlier. Well, I mean, Martha is, I mean, she's never fully walked away from directing, but she, but she does not get nearly as many opportunities as she deserves. Absolutely. And she's had to ebb and flow and, you know, you know, stop making movies about young people and like make movies about older people. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, I, one of her last reasonably successful movies was uh, for the senior citizen set. <laughs> so as we're talking about Ava Mendez in this role, I don't think she, she got a lot to do either. You know, she's just the addict that hangs out with him. And, you know, I, I lost interest in her when she cleaned up because she eventually get comes under the sway of, you know, uh, McDonough's father and starts cleaning her life up. And, I, I guess, you know, like it's always been said that dark, evil characters tend to be more interesting than bright, positive characters. And so I don't know if she was more interesting when she was a struggling sex worker versus when she was going to be she was a mom in the making. And so I, I kind of don't know if, uh, again, she's not she's not getting enough as a character here. Well, I see. I will disagree with you on that, because I think this is where we need to we can start talking about Kilmer in that this movie is full of characters that could just as easily steal this movie away from Cage. Mm-hmm. You know, that, there, that you, there are all these little moments, you know, by people that they don't get a whole lot of screen time, like Michael Shannon and mm-hmm. Feruza Balk and uh, Vondi Curtis Hall and Exhibit. Any one of these people could have taken over the movie. Mm-hmm. This movie could have been about them, and Cage could have been the periphery character. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and I think the fact that he hires these specific actors to play these characters is, you know, that hint because I mean, the minute you see Feruza Balk, oh, you know, you know, you know that okay, she's up to some shit. Yeah, the film lights up when she walks on the screen. Yeah, that oh, like you you instantly know these these two have a history. You know, they you know they have that one love making scene. Uh, together and that okay she's going to start funneling him drugs from uh, the lockup but she's probably got some shady activity of her own going on in her particular precinct yeah i would say so and so i think kilmer's presence is like the biggest kind of cue to the fact that in a sense cage's story is not that unique Cage's character thinks that he must be the only person who's having all of these problems in his life. But, you know, Kilmer is always on the periphery. And at any moment, he could he could take this movie away the same way that he took away Tombstone. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about Kilmer here in this film, because he only appears mainly in two two scenes for the most part. There's, uh, yes, the original opening scene where they're in the jail, but there's two main scenes. One is an interrogation where he is roughing up a uh, informant. And the other one is when they, in the end, arrest Exhibit, uh, Exhibit's character, Big Fate. But both of them are memorable for Kilmer's performance in them because he's on the edge as he usually is, but he can't stand up obviously to Nick Cage's insane 11 out of 10 performance in this film i feel like we we lost the thread though with with kilmer in this film because okay we know he's corrupt at the beginning because he's willing to take bets on whether a man's going to live or die in in the jail the second scene he's roughing up an informant so obviously he has no limits as to what he wants to do for this and then we jump hugely because he disappears at that point he's not in the film after that interrogation scene as far as i can remember until he shows up to arrest exhibit and then he wants to murder him that seems like a little bit of a leap. <laughs> well, I don't think it's as big of a leap, and I'll tell you why. And I think because uh, this will bring it back to what I wanted to say about Eva Mendez's character, is that Ava's character, even in this dysfunctional relationship they have, she's the more rational individual. Oh yeah, absolutely. She's using, but she's found her balance. You know, she knows when she can take a hit and when she needs to be straight. Mm. Part of the reason for Cage's decline is that he feels the need to retaliate against a client who has abused her. Mm-hmm. Whereas she did not ask him to do this. You know, she's very traumatized by what's happened, but she knows these are the hazards of my occupation and mm-hmm. I can deal with this. It's, it's probably not the first time it's happened. She has found her equilibrium, and it's not until Cage starts going off on his decline that she begins to decline as well. Mm. When she decides that she's going to get straight, there really isn't that much of story screen time anyway between once she decides to go straight and the end of the movie. So I don't think it's really fair to say that she becomes less interesting because the movie's about to finish anyway. So it's just sort of a natural third act change that would come in a resolution. I think it kind of gets into what you were asking earlier about the fact that much in the same way that she decides to clean up, she becomes less interesting. You know, people who go sober, you know, 
aren't any fun anymore because <laughs> they, you know, they can't binge and have unpredictable behavior. Mm. So it's that contrast to I'm going to make a personal step to fix myself and Cage does not, you know, mm. that, you know, that Cage kind of goes along for the ride once everybody else in his inner circle is doing it. It's like, well, you know, I've got the peer pressure. I have to fit in. And maybe there is just enough sense in his head that tells him I, I've got to tread lightly now, but mm. he's still lapsing. So with Kilmer's character, I think what it is is that Kilmer and Cage are both corrupt cops, but Kilmer, like Mendez, has found his balance. He knows what he can and cannot get away with. He can't have these manic episodes like Cage has. He can't go around just being openly flouting his mania. Mm. You know, that he, you know, he knows that, okay, I can rough up a suspect and then just say that he fell down the stairs. And subsequently, I can show up at this crime scene and plant a gun and say that he, uh, he tried to attack. You know, mm-hmm. He knows what he can and cannot get away with. In a sense, that makes him the more evil character because he's definitely going to get away with it because he's smart. He's figured things out. He's the banality of evil that is going Hmm. to continue flourishing, that in a sense, it's only the mania of Cage who has this moral tug of war in his head that is able to interrupt him. I think I would have liked to have seen one more scene with Kilmer to bridge the gap between roughing up and let's murder him. (laughs) You know, just one more tweak of the corruption dial to just get there more naturally than to dive that far into the pool. One more scene, I think, would have made this feel more natural to me. I suppose that might, for Kilmer's sake, but I think at a certain point, once Cage is going off on his odyssey of destruction, to go back to Kilmer at at any point would almost just kind of feel like like fan service. You would almost hear the internet critics saying, okay, Kilmer's contract promised him so much screen time, <laughs> so this is the contractual obligation scene that we have to put him in in order to justify his billing. I think the fact that, you know, that Kilmer does disappear from the movie for a long time, you know, in a sense, maybe he knows that, Oh yeah, this guy's gonna fuck up. He's like, okay, this this guy's gonna implode, and then I'm gonna have his job and respect, and and he, you know, he's waiting in the wings. That makes perfect sense when you consider the taunting way he talks to Cage's character in that scene, where he's like, "What? what now you have a line? Now? Oh, I thought murder's where the fun starts. You know, like that. I guess that make that makes complete sense what you're saying that he was just waiting to push." cage over the line you know just let him implode that's i think that's a really good point i didn't think about that way yeah he's the worst character because he knows how to say and do all the right things Mm. cage you know has no chill (laughs) you know he has no filter he is going to just do whatever he needs to to get something done and he's going to be brazenly open about it whereas kilmer's more seductive you know he knows how to glad hand I have to say, I would not complain if we got a scene with Kilmer and Firuza Balkan in here somewhere, because that would have been quite Yeah, I, I, I definitely would have liked to have had uh, more Firuza or more Shannon. Because mm. uh, I believe in, in this year, 
I mean, maybe it's just a serendipity of release, but you know, there were two Herzog movies in that year, and uh, the second one was My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done with mm-hmm. Michael Shannon. Yeah. So the rare director got to put two films at can. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about roughing up old women because you know, <laughs> this is a scene where McDonough is looking for information, and he goes after this old woman. Well, not really goes after the old woman. He goes to find this guy who might have delivered food to the scene of the murder. And so he follows up to his grandmother, I believe, right? His grandmother? Yeah. And the grandmother is taking care of this older woman. And he goes off on these women. It's a rare scene where you get to see the, I would you call him the hero of the film? Maybe? <laughs> I mean, go off, go off on old women like this. And it's, it is stunning to see, especially in the second scene, where he removes the oxygen from the woman and tries to choke, well, essentially chokes her with it, right? Well, it's not so much that he's choking her, it's just like, you know, she's not getting oxygen, so she can't breathe. You don't see your protagonist, because he is, I mean, he is the protagonist, Yeah. go to these lengths. And that's where, like, this is where I, I really feel like the film decided, oh, we should we really like McDonough? Uh, are we being almost like dared to like him because he can go to these lengths the film eventually in the end will will redeem him in a way by out of pure luck like you said but it's almost like the film right now is saying oh do you like him do you like him now well that comes into play but i'm also in the converse you know again in the farcical aspects the old uh, wc fields apocryphal maxim there has never been a time in anyone's life when they have not harbored a secret desire to boot a child in the ass <laughs> or the the modern equivalent of i think it was uh, chris rock's bring the pain special where you know he was doing his material on oj and talking about that Look, the rational person knows you should never hit a woman. Shit. Under the right circumstances, you can hit a woman. Just don't do it. (laughs) Under the right circumstances, you can push an old man down a flight of steps. Just don't do it. Mm -hmm. That it's a horrifying scene to watch, but in a blackly comic way, the kind of self-righteous manner both of these women are taking. The the black woman has an excuse because she knows that people like her son are going to get railroaded in the judicial system. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this affluent older white woman that she's taking care of, you know, kind of feels like she's above the police and, you know, she can call the shots, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, he's a public servant, Mm -hmm. that it's this horrifying moment to show just how low he's gotten. But there's also that perverse enjoyment of doing harm to someone even when they're an invalid who nonetheless has been a thorn in your side Mm. again i am not advocating for (laughs) any of this but going back to chris rock that sometimes black people get angry enough at other black people to think what do i have to do to join the clan (laughs) (laughs) the absolute I have had it with humanity. I am throwing propriety out the window. And we have to remember that he is doing this to try to solve the murder of five people, including children. And so if you take away the drug aspect of it, the fact that he's high as a kite and doing all this, is it more acceptable that he's going to these lengths to try to help these people? 
Well, you know, the CIA used extraordinary rendition on uh, Guantanamo inmates to get information from them. So, and I don't think any of those guys were using. So Mm. it's a matter of how good is the badge you carry? And mm-hmm. you know what? And how noble is your cause? Yeah. Do you consider this righteous anger, which technically it kind of is? <laughs> yeah. So all this stuff is happening, and at one point we go to a car accident that's happened on the street, and there's an alligator that was run over, and this is one of two incidences with a reptile, where we get this one later with some iguanas, where we get this weird, not quite first person view but kind of a slightly third person view or third gator or third reptile view from these two, this grainy footage that is watching what's happening from just offside of the reptile. Do you have any theory as to what this is all about? Because this is just weird. Well, I think there are some interpretations to be brought in. A reptile is predator. It's generally not any kind of interproductive relationship with their environment. You know, it's not like in the bush or the jungle where birds pick insects off of an elephant and where there's this codependent relationship in nature. A reptile exists to consume other life. Hmm. It's not materially contributing to their environment. So it could be Cage seeing himself in another form, you know, Hmm. that he preys upon the weak. You know, because, you know, that's what he's doing, you know, when he busts these kids coming out of a club for coke and then has sex with them, he has that ability because he's not contributing anything of worth at that moment. He is just, you know, consuming. Mm. Also, iguanas and alligators, but the greatest reptile of all is the serpent. The serpent is Satan. And there is a serpent at the beginning of the film. Yeah, that in a sense, Cage interfered with Satan claiming somebody's life. And now this is Satan taking many forms Hmm. to try and drag him down. It's an interesting way to think about it. I really couldn't come up with anything myself. I struggled to why, why are we looking at it from this angle? Because there's a shot with the iguanas where we can see Cage just entranced by these iguanas. He's just staring so hardcore at it. And we're looking at both. We're looking at the iguana staring and at Nick Cage staring at the iguana. And it just, it felt like, I mean, it's Herzog. I'm not going to put anything past him for, you, yeah. know, you know, he could just be doing it just to mess with the audience. And he's like, I like to look at iguanas. And I'd say, that's Herzog. Fine. That that works for me. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he did it twice in this film made me think that there's some sort of theme. So yours are completely legitimate ones to think about in, in that way. I just wish we had an answer from him. <laughs> and the frustration is that we never will probably have an answer from him. Well, also, it's Louisiana. It's the swamp. Mm. These are creatures that are native to it. We're coming out of the Great Katrina Flood. Had the flood completely consumed the city as could have happened, then the reptiles would have taken their place on the food chain. Mm. These are the natives of the environment in which these characters live in. Mm -hmm. And they are coming from the surface and intruding upon the genteel reality of what these people are trying to live in. Mm -hmm. Here's another point on it. The alligator is definitely there because the alligator caused the accident. Do you think the iguanas are actually there? Well, did the alligator cause the accident? I just figured the the alligator was another hallucination. Oh, see, I thought because they showed the guts hanging out. Well, I I mean, we see guts, but I figured, you know, those were human guts. Hmm. In the two times I have seen the movie, I never saw the alligator as the cause of the accident. Oh, okay. I just saw them as another figment 
of his imagination the same way that he's at the crime scene and he says, look at the iguanas and Kilmer says, there's no iguanas there. Mm. You know, that, you know, Cage is predisposed to see reptiles. So I just accepted that the alligators, at least one alligator was there. Maybe the other one might have been a figment, but and that the other one was a ghost of the first one. Because then let's talk a bit about Dave, <laughs> because Dave is another interesting character in this film. Dave is apparently some sort of crime lord, it seems. And he is following Cage around because he wants his money because Cage stole drugs from one of his clients or Somebody, somebody related to him somehow. Well, what happened is Dave is connected to the same individual that the abusive client that Ava Mendes had earlier was connected to. Because when Cage comes and beats him up for beating up his girlfriend, he also has uh, $10,000 on him and he takes the money from him just you know, to teach him a lesson you know, because he was, trying to, he was trying to stiff her. So I thought it was a different one. I thought that uh, the first one he robbed in her apartment was the one that was related to Dave and that the second one was the one that called the police because he was he's the son of somebody. Well, he didn't call the police. This guy took 10,000. It's Shea Wiggum from uh, uh, Boardwalk Empire. Hmm. Yeah, Shea Wiggum has beaten up Eva Mendez. Cage has beaten him up and taken $10,000 from him. And he's saying, do you know who I'm connected to? You know who I work for? And he's like, yo, I, I don't give a rat's ass. And then later on, Dave and his two henchmen show up at their apartment. And he's like, okay, you took 10000 So the penalty is 50000 yeah, I guess I you know, conflated you, you the got, two characters. You got to pay. You got to pay it back. And yeah. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have non-consensual sex with your your hooker girlfriend. Mm, what a wild character, Dave is. And yes, he he's the one whose soul is still dancing in the yes. the big uh, shoot shootout. Yeah. So so Dave, do you know who plays Dave? It's William Finkelstein, the writer of the film. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting to have the writer play such a, a pretty large role. And like you said, there at one point he comes after Cage and his connection, Big Fate, and wants to take all their drugs you know, because he wants all his money and he ends up getting shot. And Cage says, like you said, you shoot him again. His soul's still dancing. And then we get this odd scene where he's breakdancing you know, after death and again, an iguana. And I was like, okay, so now we're really getting deep. And I don't know that much about New Orleans voodoo and, you know, that kind of uh, culture. So I'm wondering if there's something in there that we either were, wasn't explained to us in the film or that I'm just not aware of that ties this all together. I do not know. My gut reaction is if we're looking at reptiles as the true inhabitants of New Orleans and the iguana is present, that Cage has reached this kind of supernatural view of the world and himself so that he can see into the spirit realm. The fact that the dancing soul of Dave is not only dancing, but break dancing, <laughs> you know, my gut reaction would be, well, you know, Dave fancies himself a black gangster. Mm. You know, that he is trying to steal from an actual black gangster and prove that he's the tougher guy because, you know, it's clearly a much younger, more nimble individual who's doing the break dancing and oh, yes. I, you know, it's, I don't even think that's supposed to be a goof or or anything I think this is the person that Dave envisions himself being that he is this young 
you know, hothead punk who can do all of this stuff when the reality is he is a fat, over-the-hill crime boss past his prime. Mm-hmm. I like that idea that that's, that's what his soul is, is. That's who it represents his own soul. That's what he views it as. And so that's why that's dancing. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, he wants to be Exhibit. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how good of a breaker Exhibit was in his teens, but I'm sure he could have popped and locked with the best of them. Oh, I'm sure of it. <laughs> so as this is all happening, well, actually just before this is all happening, McDonough smokes crack with Big Fate using his lucky crack pipe. And this is, I thought, a little interesting because up until this point, McDonough hasn't made good decisions. He hasn't really been in his own head for the most part through most of this film. A lot of it is just flying by the seat of his pants. But here he has the idea, I'm going to get him to smoke my crack pipe so that, and as we learn later, his DNA is now on the crack pipe. And so they can use it as evidence. I don't know if I bought that he was in his head enough to do that kind of thing right there. Um, I think from the very beginning, when he decides to infiltrate Big Fate's criminal organization, he's doing so because he wants to incriminate from within. Mm-hmm. I think he, like he's figured out that you know fate has his fingers in so many pies. The only way that I'm going to bring this guy down is if I trick him. You yeah, know? I get and that, that for sure. That so I think he probably already had the the crack pipe plan in mind. Hmm. I think it takes him longer to get into a position where he can put the plan into place, you know, because he's got to earn his trust. And he walks into that because of uh, his relationship with uh, Shannon and Balk, where he knows, okay, this is where these things are going to be coming in. And then I can come to him with this phony tip that I know where the drugs are being busted and I can intervene. So I think, however, that, yeah, he is flying by the seat of his pants and he is still making bad decisions even while he's trying to execute this plan because his demons still have the better of him, that he still likes drugs more than he loves justice. When he's doing that story about the, shall we say, the black elk, you know, he, you know part of him is like being defiant, you know, just, you know, the, the drugs have, have made him go tone loco. So he, so he's lost his sense, but there's also part of him. And it's like, I'm, I'm a cop. Are you going to shoot me? If I start, you know, usurping your, your Ebonics, if I start talking like you, are you going to, are you going to laugh at me? And part of it, I think might also be legitimate self-destruction. It's like, let's see how far I can go. I'm going to test these guys endurance for my behavior so that I'm either going to bring this guy down through the law or I am going to get killed. Hmm. One or the other thing has to happen, but I can't, I can't go on the way I am. He either wants to go down in the most ignominious blaze of glory he can, or he's going to achieve what has been impossible and actually break this case. Hmm. He has essentially nothing to lose. And he's the yes. classic hero who has nothing to lose because it's either going to work out, which he starts seeing things work out for him, which probably helps him push further. <laughs> you know, when, when things start falling into line, when he gets he wins all his bets suddenly, and <laughs> then all the complaints against him start falling apart. So, I mean, I guess at that point, why not go further? Like you said, just go for it and, and do whatever you want to. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that you know, there's a moment where he has recognized a football player that is going to be in one of the games that he's betting on. Mm -hmm. And he's 
basically ordered the guy to shave points. Mm -hmm. When he watches the actual game, apparently the guy doesn't even play. Yeah, he pulled himself out of the game. Yeah. So rather than commit the sin of you know, not playing his best, he just takes himself out of the equation. And that worries him some because you know he goes into the office thinking, oh, I had finally got this guy paid off, but you know I lost the money again. And then, no, the, the other team still sucked bad <laughs> enough that you know, he, they were able to win. Yeah. You know, he's not just gotten one deus ex machina. He's gotten a whole deus ex machina factory working for him. Like I said before, I don't know if I buy this section of the film because of how insane. I mean, and like you said, it's a farce. So in that in that context, yes, it's it makes perfect sense to just say, hey, here's a big pile of good luck. Congratulations. But everything had been going wrong up until this point. And then suddenly everything goes right again. And that's the solution to the film, essentially, because from that point on, it's all positives. And despite that, despite everything going great, because at that point he busts big fate. He then gets promoted to captain because of his great work as a lieutenant. He's got Frankie. They've got a house. She's pregnant. Everything is going great. Despite everything, like you said, he did that's wrong. And then he goes right back into it again. Yeah. You brought up the concept of cycles. Mm-hmm. The old maxim about if Wiley Coyote actually caught the roadrunner, he wouldn't know what to do with him. Mm. You know, that, that he's he's all he's been, well, literally chasing the dragon. Another heroin metaphor, another reptile metaphor. There you, there you go. go. That now that he's gotten more than he ever wanted, he doesn't know what to do. That, mm. you know, he's going to he's going to fall into the same habits because like, how did this happen? I didn't ask for this. I don't really deserve all of this. I'm still kind of a piece of shit human being here. Mm. He's known how to deal with failure. He doesn't know how to deal with success. That's a really good point. Perhaps there was something suicidal about him at a point. When everything turns around, what do you do next? If you've already passed that tipping point, what do you do? Yeah. When Alexander looked on his kingdom, he wept for there were no worlds to conquer. (laughs) He's been all about the upward mobility, and now he's as upward as they come. Mm. Yeah, he's he's captain. He's reached the pinnacle, essentially. And then it's funny because then he, he drops off Frankie at the house and he, he meets Chavez, the guy who was in the prison at the beginning. Well, he busts another uh, couple. Yes, repeats the same scenario. He descends again mm-hmm. and he runs into Chavez at the hotel. Yes. And he says, you know, sometimes I have bad days, <laughs> which is like, it's such a beautifully understated <laughs> message for this film. Some days, well, I, sometimes I have bad days. <laughs> That is the maximum of sober living, one day mm. at a time. Mm. Well, he takes Chavez to a aquarium, and they're sitting staring at fish. I think it's Chavez that takes him to an aquarium. Oh, you think it's that way? Oh, yeah, I guess. Because you know, he, he asks, do you think fish dream? And yeah, that's the last line of the film. Do you think fish dream? And I believe it's like Chavez who knows of this aquarium. Like, I, I want to say that I, I don't think it's the – is it really the last line? Do they not have any dialogue? Okay. That's it. That, the last line is, I, uh, do you think fish dream? They're at the aquarium and they're just watching the fish. Yes. It seems to me like there's some, there's just some sort of reaction shot on Chavez where he's like getting the inspiration of, uh, you know, I know where to take you. Yeah. In the, in the hotel, right? Like, you know, when yeah. yeah. And then when they get to the aquarium, I assumed that he got Chavez high again and ruined his sobriety. And they sit there and watch fish. And 
he says, do you think fish dream? And then they, they, they oh, sit I see. on I that. thought he said, no, because I could have swore he said, do you think fish dream in the hotel room? And that's what prompts him to take him to the aquarium. I think you're right. I think I had it backwards. Yes, you're correct. Look at my notes. You're correct. He asks Chavez if fish dream, and then they are sitting at the aquarium. And there's nothing said at that point. That's the end of the dialogue was, do you think fish dream? Yeah. Which I think is a line from the poem at the beginning Yes, that, yes the, from... that the kid wrote in the in the house. I tried to figure out what what do you think he means by that, or is it just he's stuck on that one moment, like the obsession of this kid who was killed thinking about fish. Well, that's a prime thing that he he broke the case, but he's still kind of haunted by the the sheer brutality of it. Mm-hmm. What he saw that sometimes people medicate themselves against trauma. But also, if you think about, at least for certain species, particularly the goldfish, fish have no memory. Mm. So if they have no memory, can they dream? Can they lapse into a subconscious and contemplate things that they will not retain? Hmm. And then I wonder if that connects to the reptiles, this animal level of thinking, where it's, it's just reaction to what you come across. Do you, you know, I don't know if they know if reptiles think ahead or if they plan or anything like that, or if they're just purely reactionary creatures that, you know, whatever comes across their path is what they do next. And mm-hmm. that's perhaps what he is at that point is just, you know, no memory of what he did in the past, leave it all behind and just react to the next thing that comes. Yeah. I did not get the impression that either man got high at the aquarium. I feel like they are legitimately sober in a relaxed state. They have found a place that soothes them. Hmm. That that would be a positive way to see it. And I'd like to, that to be the case because I would like to not think that Chavez lost it again. Herzog can certainly have uh, dark visions of humanity, but I don't think he applies it here. I think his dark vision is the fact that this guy can miraculously get all the breaks and still not know what to do with them. It's not that, you know, the bad guy got away with it. The bad guy flourished and he doesn't and he doesn't know how what to do next. You know, that, that it's because in some ways, none of us know necessarily what we're going to do next, regardless of whether our fortunes turn good or bad. Hmm. And my mother-in-law has a saying, she says that uh, God gives cookies to those who can't chew. <laughs> it's like that you get things that you don't necessarily can do anything with. And, you know, he's given these good opportunities and we'll just screw it up in the end. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't talked about about this one that you wanted to cover? Well, I mean, this is an awfully long episode with so little Kilmer content. <laughs> yeah, that happens kind of... with Kilmer, unfortunately. Sometimes, you know, he's a starring name and then doesn't do a whole lot in the film. I still find it interesting to cover the film itself, though. <laughs> well, as we did detail, he is, in a sense, a fulcrum of the story in that he is the reminder of how much worse it could be, you know, that... Mm. You know, Cage is off the rails, but he is never dishonest. Mm. You know, you know like if you think back to the scene in the pharmacy where he gets pissed off about wanting his, his pills and busts behind the counter, he didn't steal them. He puts the money yeah. down. He just did, he couldn't deal with the time he needed to spend on it. He just needed to get them then and now. And so he wasn't doing the wrong thing. He was just doing the right thing the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. 
Whereas, you know, Kilmer, he'd be more suave about throwing his weight around. He'd be like, if you don't get off that phone, I am going to call the SWAT team here and and shut your business down for, you know, health violations. You know, yeah. that he's going to be much more slippery. Cage has conscience, but doesn't have, you know, have the control. Whereas Kilmer has no conscience and has the control. <laughs> yes. Well, now that we've had our say about this film, why don't we hear from the man himself? It's time for a reading from the Book of Val. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, you know, I have the book, I'm Your Huckleberry, which is Val Kilmer's memoir. I would have thought there would be a mention of this film in that book. I mean, there's not a single mention of Nick Cage, not a mention of Werner Herzog, not a mention of New Orleans. It's very strange that he doesn't have any mention of this book. I did find a passage there where I talk, he talks about a, a different path he could have took, which I thought tied into the whole story of the film. After graduating from the Juilliard School, I was given two golden opportunities. The first came from my Christian science practitioner. The practitioner was an elderly woman who had been in vaudeville and found success as an actor before giving up La Vida Loca for truth and grounding. When it came to ministry, she was the real thing. She had a gift for healing. She said that I too possessed that gift and asked me to accept a role as her acolyte and eventually her replacement. I could have stayed. I could have lived a patient life, an earnest life an experience on earth defined by divine healing. Like Moses, I said no. I said I didn't want the job. In essence, I believe I had said no to the fates because unlike Moses, I would never pick up the staff. To this day, I wonder whether I denied my destiny. Or should I say, I was pretty damn sure I was running away from my destiny. I was just very, very scared. Thanks be to Val. You know, I, I love that... Um, his thought and process, his thought process has always got like this higher level thought to him. Um, it's never just what's the thing and which is stands in contrast to the whole thing we're talking about here, where these animals are in the film are reacting to whatever's next. And Nick Cage is reacting to whatever's next. Kilmer's always kind of planning and thinking ahead and doing the right thing until unfortunately in his career, his life kind of fell apart where one he had a huge financial setback that cost him so much and ended up making him do films that he didn't want to do and two eventually his throat cancer which has robbed him of a lot of his acting ability unfortunately so unfortunately it's kind of says you know you can plan all you want but in the end it's not going to it's not always going to account to for what happens in your life yeah i would not want to think that kilmer is a dismissive individual you know, especially of anybody like, you know, Cage or of Herzog, mm -hmm. I would not be surprised if he viewed his work on Bad Lieutenant as, you know, kind of just another paycheck gig. Gun for hire, yeah. Because he didn't have a substantial enough part and he was doing all of these like three-day wonders, you know, he, he goes in, you know, sits behind a desk and, you know, fires a couple shots and they say, okay, that's a wrap that is like that it just was another one of those for him mm. you know like uh you know the comparison i would make is uh in uh, richard pryor's autobiography he barely gives a page to superman 3 and just kind of you know dismisses it whereas if you look at interviews during the time he was clearly a huge fan of the original superman yet he was on the carson show talking about how much he loved it and that when he got to be in superman 3 this you know he was really excited because i'm i get to be part of this franchise hmm. i think he had kicked most of his drug addiction by then he was still using after he had his accident or a suicide attempt but 
you know, certainly not in the same quantities that he had previously. It testifies that sometimes your estimation of what you do versus others' estimation of it can be wildly divergent. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Or your enthusiasm at the time may dissipate and then it just becomes another thing. Yeah, another job. And that's a lot of what Kilmer's career ended up being in the, in the last decade or so of his working career. He still does a couple of films here and there, but it's not the same as it was because of his illness. Mm-hmm. Let's see what some other people have to say about this film. Come children, let's explore the kills and valleys. Kills and Valleys are the best and worst reviews of this film. On Rotten Tomatoes, Portacol New Orleans has an 86% rating, which is quite positive. A lot of glowing reviews, including Roger Ebert, who loved the film. Mm-hmm. He said, Portacol uh, Port New Orleans is not about plot. It's about seasoning. Like New Orleans cuisine, it finds that you can put almost anything in the pot if you add the right spices and peppers and simmer it long enough. I love, I love Ebert's reviews. <laughs> uh, well, you know, when, when, he, when Ebert died, uh, to paraphrase uh, the old... Uh, uh, Billy Wilder quote is like, no more Roger Ebert. And what's worse, no more Roger Ebert reviews. <laughs> so it's such a bummer. He he always wrote so beautifully. Uh, A.O. Scott, New York Times wrote, uh, Terry McDonough enters a realm where craziness and craft become one. But Mr. Herzog does not follow him all the way. There is discipline in Bad Lieutenant and a principled respect. Similar to that shown in Mr. Herzog's war movie, Rescue Dawn, for the pleasures and requirement of genre. The atmosphere is redolent with corruption and need and nutty as the film it sometimes is its brutality and confusion are never played for laughs it has a warped sincerity and an energy that keeps going and going i don't know if it's never played for laughs well i mean we we've heard dozens of comedians talking about you know the germans uh, maladeptness with humor uh, <laughs> that i i think it i think there are laughs, but they are not, they're not LOLs, they're LQTMs. Mm. They're laughing quietly to myself. <laughs> yeah, little strange moments that make you yeah, bemused. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On the other side of the ledger, David Denby of The New Yorker was not impressed. Uh, Herzog, who seems to be drawing on the audience's affection for him as an inspired madman, may not care to tell a straight story anymore. The poetic possibilities of drug addiction have both liberated and overwhelmed him. The movie is a mess. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a mess. It's, it's a pretty straightforward storyline. I mean, with some weird, surreal moments thrown into it. Mm-hmm. Joel Newmeyer of the New York Daily Times gave the film one star. After so many over-the-top Nicolas Cage performances, we're at the point where the actor's movies get attention mostly for his increasingly odd style. His latest, Bad Lieutenant Protocol New Orleans, sets up a scenario where Cage can snarl, shout, and generally let loose. But rather than being a safe zone, the film is an exasperating bore. It's not a boring film. No. No, <laughs> you can you can say a lot of things about this movie, but I, I if you call it boring, you know, you know, no. If you're bored, you are boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- this film has a lot going on and a lot of interesting stuff happening. Uh, boring is the last word I would ever use to describe it. <laughs> You know, it's only boring in that, you know, a drill bores into your soul. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's correct. <laughs> Over on Amazon, the unwashed masses have left us just 446 reviews. It seems low for me uh, to me. I mean, between the Nick Cage cult and the Val Kilmer cult and the Werner Herzog cult, I would think there'd be more reviews. Uh, so that's somewhat surprising to me. Of those reviews, 61% are five stars, though. So, you know, hey, uh, people liked it. I love Nick Cage in this movie. Wow, what a wild and demented character he plays, but oh, so real. I'm sure 
He's the bad, really bad cop with a heart that seeks justice. His version of justice is a bit skewed, and I'll let you find that out on your own, LOL. <laughs> I guess, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a little skewed, maybe. <laughs> uh, I thought the original was awesome, a masterful film, but yet so dark, so sad, but unflinching and depressing. This uh, bad Lieutenant Protocol New Orleans didn't leave me with that feeling. It was Cage's performance that hooked me and had me laughing at some of the crazy scenes. If anything's worth checking out for its Cage performance. That's a five-star review, by the way. <laughs> Somebody's a little confused about how they feel about the film. <laughs> Over on the other side, only 1% of the reviews were one stars, but let me tell you, these reviews are some of the most angry and upset reviews I've ever read on Amazon for a film. Like usually the, the 1% reviews are the DVD didn't work or the sound was bad. These people hated this movie. And I, I don't even understand why. We were totally let down by this movie. Being fans of Nick Cage, we expected far better. The setting and scenes of this movie went from bad to worse and then from disgusting to sickening. We could not watch the entire movie. It was that bad. Video buyers beware. This movie is not worth any amount of money and should be sent to the trash. I mean, what? <laughs> it doesn't build that horribly like as far as like if you're talking about like any kind of violence or uh, well well at least they weren't bored by it you know they (laughs) they had a they had a violent reaction to it so yeah if you consider all these bad reviews there's no way this movie's boring because these people really got affected by it (laughs) should have been named bad movie sort of all blue or sucked somebody trying to be clever there (laughs) didn't work yeah Save your money. This movie only goes to show that Nicolas Cage and Val Kilmer are definitely washed up. I wish I could get my money back and my time back. I, here's something that ties into something you said. I just want to put my eyes out with a cordless drill thinking about how much time I spent on this movie. <laughs> More boring. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I mean, the people who didn't like this movie probably uh, didn't even look at the trailer because it, it's pretty clear what this kind of movie was from the beginning. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I mean, think there were any surprises. Yeah. You, you went you went into a movie called Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans. So it, you already know there's going to there's going to be bad behavior. It's going to be long and unwieldy. <laughs> yeah, the, the title hides nothing in this film. <laughs> so we have a decision to make with or without Val. So this one's a pretty easy one considering how much he's in the film, but does Val Kilmer make or break this film? Well, well, sorry, Val, you do not. Uh, make the film that if he was not if he was not there the film would probably still work Mm -hmm. what he does bring is what i stated previously is that he is lurking on the periphery in a manner that suggests that he could have stolen this movie away from cage if he wanted to What I'm most disappointed about in this film is that we didn't get a New Orleans accent from Al Kilmer. (laughs) I would have loved to hear that of him try that one out because his accents, he really goes for it when he does them. (laughs) So now that we've covered today's film, I'd like to play a game called you take the good, you take the bad. So bad Lieutenant is just one film in the very wide bad film cinematic universe. Many films that start with the word bad. I'm going to give you part of a film's title and you'll tell me if it starts with either good bad or both so for example if i said santa the answer would be bad santa exactly uh we're only counting feature films so no shorts and no tv okay ready to go let's do it first one is words bad bad words starring jason bateman absolutely number two 
Burger. Good. Good burger. Very good burger. I enjoy that film. I don't know if you enjoy that film or not, but I, I enjoy it. <laughs> Number three, Time. Both. Only good. There's a good time, and I'm I'm positive there's a there's movie called Bad Time. Bad Times. It's a technical, technical thing. It's times, not time for the bad one. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll uh, see. We'll check but... with the judges. <laughs> <laughs> boys. Both. Correct. Good boys and bad boys. Yes. I don't know which one's better, though. <laughs> Good boys is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Not the biggest Michael Bay fan, although, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I love Edgar Wright, and he says bad boys, too, is worth seeing, so... Mm. Got to give that some credit. Yeah. <laughs> German. Uh, good. Yes. The good German. How about education? Bad. Correct. Hair. Oh, both. Yes, correct. Both. Just recently bad. Before that, good. Son. Good both there's a both a bad son and a good son film <laughs> samaritan both no only bad there's no good samaritan film at least not one i could find in the imdb if we can find if we find one you know let me know <laughs> yeah. and shepherd good correct good very good job you did excellent on that and i'd like to thank you for spending this time with me to go over a film with not a lot of Kilmer in it, but a lot of craziness anyway. A lot of uh, Kil Kilmer-esque elements, just yes. not enough Kilmer. Exactly. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, well, yes. Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter at uh, T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, the phonetic pronunciation of my name. Uh, my blog is uh, Project has been drinking.blogspot.com. Uh, you can read my Rainbow Harvest essay, um, another essay I wrote about uh, music video inspired thrillers of the 80s, and uh, my, my top 13 films of 2020 and of uh, the decade. By the time uh, this episode drops, my first uh, singles match in the Schmodown will be uh, available to view. If awesome. you don't follow the movie trivia Schmodown, I'm uh, in the league. I'm uh, one of the uh, biggest heels in uh, the organization. <laughs> I've all my all my previous matches. I have never actually come out on top, but I still scare everybody in their boots. So <laughs> that says something. And if you haven't checked out the Schmodown, definitely check it out. You know, people who have been on the show before have on, are on it, and you definitely want to check out Mark on it. And uh, and I also have another uh, recurring uh, podcast with uh, B. Peterson as part of uh, their uh, the Screens Margins uh, network of podcasts. It's a uh, it's a Patreon only uh, podcast devoted to the films of uh, pioneering director Dorothy Arzner. Uh -huh. uh, it so if you join. Uh, the screen margins patreon program and become a base level subscriber you can get access to uh, all those podcasts very cool in our next episode we'll be traveling back to 1996 for a vacation on the idyllic island of dr moreau in the meanwhile please email any thoughts questions or comments to kilmercast.gmail.com and follow the show on twitter at kilmercast for myself and my guest mark edward hoyk thank you for listening and remember to keep it kilmer hey.